0: All right, so this is 1 Corinthians, and we are in chapter 12 tonight. Like 8, 9, and 10, chapters uh, 12, 13, and 14 all go together. Everybody knows chapter 13. What is 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about? All right, and what is chapter 12 about? Spiritual gifts. And 14? Not really sure. Okay, actually,
1: huh?
0: Edify others, in the body. Edify others in the body. There's something about that up on the board behind me, isn't there? Yes. Well done, Tom. Tom's paying attention. I've actually laid up here on the board how these chapters go together. And actually, the the um, the center of it, the core of it, is actually chapter 13. We we take chapter 13 and, and apply that other places. Which is fine, but it was given as the operating principle that controls how spiritual gifts are exercised or used within the church. So, chapter 12 is, ta- is going to talk about there's a diversity of gifts. They're to be used or exercised in love and then that's the manner and then the purpose of spiritual gifts within the church is to edify others in the body so there's a question behind chapters 12 13 and 14 and uh, I think it has something to do not with gifts in general oftentimes we've seen with Paul already he lays groundwork before he gets to the real issue and that happens again here. Like in chapter 8, he laid that groundwork of be willing to yield your rights for others. Or, uh, or, or be, be aware of the needs of others. Chapter 9, yield your rights to others. Before he actually gets to, okay, what do we do with this meat sacrificed to idols? Here in chapters 12, 13, and 14, he's going to do something similar. He's going to lay some foundations what are gifts all about? What kind of gifts are there? There's a a wide diversity of them, actually. And uh, there are several listings of the gifts, and he's going to tighten that list down. He's going to narrow the focus and narrow the focus until he's only talking about one. But we won't get there until next week in chapter 14. My plan is to look at chapter 12 and 13 tonight, and then move into chapter 14 next week, if that works out. I didn't even prepare the uh, notes the rest of the way for um, chapter 14 for tonight. So this should be where we stop. Um, Before we go any further, let's begin in a word of prayer. Tyler, would you lead us?
2: Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to come and study your word here tonight. Um, Just pray that you will open our eyes and open our hearts that we can uh, understand what you're trying to say. Just pray for Pastor Bob as he instructs us from your word that we will... Just be enlightened and encouraged throughout this week. We will to apply it to uh, the message that we share with others. That everyone we know will come to know you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. So now concerning spiritual gifts, now concerning tells us what? We bumped into that a few times already. Started in chapter 7.
2: Here's a question somebody
0: asked. Questions that they had sent to Paul. We would like you to give us some direction on these issues. And they obviously had asked about spirituals. Now your Bible translation translates it spiritual gifts, but they've asked about spirituals. Um, it's very broad, but they're, they're, the, the context unpacks what we mean by that and that's why it's translated that way. The, um, um, we don't know here exactly what has been asked but I think the question has to do with the um, some practice of tongues or how should tongues be practiced within the church I think that's the question and they probably wouldn't like his answer right off the top I know sometimes somebody asks me a question and I give an answer and it's kind of a long answer and uh, that's, people often are looking for a long answer. They're looking for a short answer. But the short answer is simply going to determine do I agree with the initial conclusion they've already come to or not. And that's where we're going to end it. I agree with them or not. And that doesn't change or help anything. Um, Paul doesn't give a, sh- a short answer. He gives a long answer. But in it, we actually give a g- get a good theology of what we should know about spiritual gifts in general rather than just focusing on tongues. Okay. All that to, to, to get us in. Spiritual gifts should benefit the entire body in orderly worship and selfless love rather than selfish pride. He's going to talk about things that puff up. He's going to refer to pride along the way. That's why I, I, I did front load that, included that in the statement. Um, In chapter 12, the church is spiritually gifted with unity and diversity, like a human body, for every member to play an important part and benefit the entire church. So we see that a a diversity in unity displayed in this chapter, and we see the comparison for for the body of Christ, the, the, the local church, that compared to the way that God has created the human body. With a diversity Diverse parts that are in a unity, an essential unity. They all make one and they all do different things that contribute to the overall single unifying purpose. In in the first couple of verses, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, when you see brethren or brothers, typically in this kind of context, that word that's used there is a word that, that, that word, it's a masculine word, but it was used to refer to the whole. So often, when I read, I will just add in brothers and sisters. That's why. I do not want you to be uninformed, uninformed, unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Now, what's he saying there? What's he Yeah. Okay. Okay. First of all, you were, you were um, led astray... To mute idols, idols that did not speak. That's funny, he's, he's toying with this whole speaking thing right from the very beginning. It's going to emerge in the end, but he's already toying with it a little bit. But those idols were lifeless, but he uses mute to draw that out. And he points out that they were pagans, yes. Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says... Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now that's actually a more difficult verse than it seems at first first glance. What do you notice there? There's a contrast to verse 2, first of all. that We have mute idols and we have people speaking. Yeah, speaking in the Spirit yeah, they're gonna, they're, they're, they want to know about speaking in the Spirit he's already leading in there but he's not going to answer the question yet but he's, he's tracking with them he's drawing them in really now no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed well I don't have any problem with that that makes sense to me if you're speaking by the Spirit leading your words you're not going to say that Jesus is accursed because the Spirit wouldn't say that Okay, that's good enough. And we probably that more generally to anything the Spirit is animating. Anything the Spirit is energizing and enabling within our life, first of all, there's a statement there that it's going to be in line with. It's going to be in harmony with who God is and what God would say. God's Spirit is not going to say Jesus is accursed because God wouldn't say that. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an underlying principle there. These, he's he's, he's going to come back to that thought later. But it, just, it should be in line. Anything you, you say, just because something is happening, you might say the Spirit is doing it. But the Spirit is going to do those things that are consistent with God as, we, as He has revealed Himself. Can't with the you can, right. There's not going to be a contradiction within the Godhead. Yeah, so what the Spirit is doing is going to be in line with what God has said and how God has revealed Himself. It can disagree with that. Okay. Um, also, the, now the next one, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit.
2: I think the issue with that, we say it say, because anyone can say that.
0: Yeah, people could read those words. I mean, we would say, right.
2: Well, demons acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. So there's this... Yeah. What, what are the definitions here of saying this and yeah. saying believe this and acknowledge this? But now,
0: you raised a question though. Is there a place in scripture where, where a demon actually calls Jesus Lord? Right. He call, they call him Son of God, Messiah, the Christ, Son of David, maybe, I don't know. But, but I'm not sure that they ever call him Lord. That, that, that intrigues me. Yeah. I wonder if they don't. But yes, you're right, a person could say those words even though they're not saved. Even though they're not saying it by the Holy Spirit, they don't even mean it necessarily. So, but to say that insincerity, to mean that, has to have the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Humans do not um, do not confess Jesus except by the working of the Spirit. Now, if you compare that over to Romans, where, where when Paul talks about believing, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved, this would suggest that Paul is assuming that is a, a spirit-enabled genuine confession. Over there in Romans 9, that's a confession to salvation. So you can add in your, in, your, in your Bible margin maybe you're in notes here uh, you could add in Romans 10, 9 and 10 there that's an interesting cross reference that I'm not sure is contained in the cross references here, I don't, oh yeah see Romans 10, 9, there it is, there's the cross reference
2: Is there also an aspect of when you speak truth that the Holy Spirit has provided that truth even if you don't believe that truth, you think of like um, the sign over Jesus when he was crucified where it said you know, this is the king of the Jews. Mm. Like, That's true, mm. even though they weren't meaning it to be truth. And you're like, God is true, so...
0: There are certainly times when a true statement comes out of un- from unbelievers. Yeah. Um, uh, remember the time when the high priest in John chapter 12, I think it is, says that it is better for one man to die for the nation rather than the whole nation perish. Right. And he's meaning, we got to kill this Jesus, or else the Romans are going to take us all out. That's what the high priest is saying. we got to take out this guy to preserve ourselves. But but he's speaking, he doesn't even know, but he's speaking prophetically as the high priest. (laughs) That yes, Jesus is going to die for the sins of the nation. That's how John interprets it. So that's an example of that happening. Okay, let's get into the, the core of it then. He's, he's teased the topic, this, this whole speaking by the Spirit. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties, or think diversities, of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So there's a, there's a diversity of God's working in, with an essential unity in the triune God. Notice he says the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. Lord is often uh, first-century language used for the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God. So you have the, the Spirit, the Son, and God refer, referred to here, and that's why I, I mentioned in there there's an essential unity even in the plurality of the godhead god the, the son god the father the son and the spirit all on the same page in how they are working in the church the the spirit is not over here doing something wild and crazy and new that's separate from and apart from god the father or god the, god the son there's a there's a unity here Verse 7, "...to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for for the common good." For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, another prophecy, another the ability to distinguish between spirits, uh, to another the various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each individually as He wills. Okay. Diverse gifts are listed, Are given by each, to each by the one Spirit. Does everybody have any particular gift? Are all Christians given gift A, B, or C? I'm sorry. Yeah, we all have a gift. We are all gifted there's a variety of gifts to, um, let me see, uh, all these are empowered by the ones who apportions to each one individually. So the Spirit gives to each one individually and I I would say yes, each one is given a gift. Is there any gift, prophecy, healing, faith, miracles, distinguishing spirits, tongues, is there any particular gift that's given to everybody? Is that in this passage? What did he say here? (laughs) To one is given this, to another that, to another this, to another that. Is anybody given all the gifts? No. This one that, this one that, this one that. God spreads them around. Now why does he do that? okay like the human body it's the same way that there's a diversity that he gives different parts a different job to do and then there's no claiming of extra glory that ones more important than the other because if all these giftings are needed and they are spread out throughout the body that every part of the body each member of the body is needed then so here it seems to be saying that um, one of the things you'll hear when, when a particular gift is focused on in a church, and just to be open probably that happens the most today with the gift of tongues, that that's an indicator gift about where you are with other spiritual giftings, what do you do with tongues? And uh, there are there are a certain number of churches that would say that that um, People who have been baptized by the Spirit, who have received a second blessing, should would speak in tongues. That's the evidence of that. So that's a particular gift that is not just given to one or another, but it's given to everybody who's reached that more spiritual level. That's commonly taught today, but that's contrary to what he's saying here. One is given one gift. One is another. Another. Another is given this. Another is given that, as the Spirit determines. Okay. So who who whose will is it involved in? Who gets what gift? In verse eleven, by the Spirit, as as He wills. Yeah. Okay. So we've established some principles already. There are many different gifts that are given according to how the Spirit wants to do that, scattering them throughout the body. Okay. Then, uh, verse 12, it's a separate paragraph, but just as the body is one, it's continuing the thought. The body is one in many members, also the members of the body, though many are one. So there is a, there is a unity in this diversity. So it's coming back to that again. The diverse giftings of the, of the many different members are all needed in the one body. Both in the local and in the universal church. So this is going to take up the rest of the chapter as he unpacks that, that statement that he's introduced here in verse 12. And verse 13. In one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free... No matter the human distinctions among us, we are all made to drink of one Spirit. We are all baptized by the Spirit into one body, and we all partake of one Spirit. So there are two things that he says about the Spirit in the church here. What are those two things? In verse 13... Okay, by in 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 or by one Spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Now, what body is that? That is the body of Christ. That is to to where Paul gets the language to be in Christ. Uh, What does baptized mean? Baptized is an English word that comes out of a Greek word. It means to dip something in something else and typically normally the word has the meaning that in the dipping or the immersing in one thing into another it doesn't have the necessary impl- implication of drawing it back out but when we baptize in water we always do and there's another reason for that it's because that we bury in, in we are buried with Christ's death under the water but you can't stay buried can you? Because of his resurrection, raised with him, Paul says in Romans 6, to walk in new life. And so I, I promise people, if, if listen, I'm going to put you under. I might hold you there a little bit, but I'm going to bring you back up. I have to. It's theology. So that always comforts them a little bit. How long? Three days? No more than three days, ever. <laughs> so, okay, back on topic. Um, So to be baptized into the body of Christ, and it has the implication of to be placed into something and in so doing it changes the character of that which is immersed. There's a change. It's kind of like when you're you're tempering steel and you heat it and then then you rapid cool it, right? You immerse it into the cold water and in doing so it changes the steel. That's, that, that, that expectation would be in that word, to some extent. There's an implication of that. So, so we are placed into Christ, and we are all made to drink of the one spirit. There's a unity in that all of us have received one spirit. So we've all, all Christians have been baptized into Christ, and all Christians have been made to drink of one spirit. Paul says something similar when he says, if you do not have the spirit of Christ, in Romans 8, you do not belong to him. So all Christians have the spirit. One Christian doesn't need to tell another you, what you need. You need to get the spirit. Because all Christians are indwelt by the spirit. All Christians are baptized by the spirit into the body of Christ. Okay, verse fourteen. Any questions so far? I mean, feel free. We're small—a small enough group. Inter- interrupt me at any time. Done. I
1: remember when some famous Christian was accused
0: of doing something bad. Uh huh. I only him. Uh huh. That's not right, isn't it? In the sense, he's only him. Paul Paul uses that. Are, are you not acting like mere humans? He uses that in chapter three. And with the implication that they shouldn't be acting as mere humans, because they are indwelt by the Spirit of the living God, that they should, they should act differently. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean that not all of us still live in this weak flesh. And Paul, Paul himself says, that which I would do, that which I want to do, I don't do. And that which I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? So Paul himself experienced that tension of doing, within this weak mortality, the things he didn't want to do. But yeah, the Spirit brings about that the Holy Spirit is able, Paul says in Romans 8, I love Romans 8, I think it's verse 12, 12 or 14, that the Spirit which raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. I do not think that verse speaks of the Spirit resurrecting us into transformed bodies. I think that's, that verse is referring to the Spirit's giving life to us in these mortal bodies that He enlivens, enables, He quickens us already. That's a wonderful thing, that we, we are not merely living on the best intentions and abilities of our human flesh. Yeah, exactly. That's
2: wrong. Reading this, you'd say, Well, because Jesus died and then came back, and then when he went up to heaven, he said, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit fills us and it gives us these spiritual gifts. But a lot of these spiritual gifts are very commonly, even more commonly, found in the Old Testament. So, like prophecy is something that's found in the Old Testament, yes, okay, so, okay. Then there's that aspect of in the Old Testament, people are filled with the Spirit, taking out thy Holy Spirit from me. So apparently it comes and goes in the Old
0: Testament? Yes, yes. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon a person. The Holy Spirit came upon Saul, and Saul prophesied. Not at a good time in Saul's life, either. It was actually a judgment upon Saul. And uh, so, yeah, the Spirit would, would, would come upon somebody, but now the Spirit indwells. And that's the difference. And one of the aspects of the indwelling of the Spirit is that there is a closeness of us with God that the thing about the New Covenant that the Spirit can come and dwell with us is because our sin has been removed the, Spirit is, or the sin is removed and so there's no separation between us and God in that sense and the Spirit evidences that so yeah it's a different reality from the Old Testament that's a good catch
1: Like it's you know like there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. You know, different kinds of service, but the same Lord. So mm-hmm. I just think of that like now, and that's connected to the part of the Trinity, and it reminds me yeah. of I, I think you're talking about in Genesis, like the creation of the world, how the Holy Spirit was there and Jesus was right, there. right, and how they are kind of like builders, like a construction crew. Uh-huh. And I, I could never remember what you said were the qualities, but it's just kind of. Reminds me of it because I'm like the Spirit <clears throat> giving us gifts. God's kind of working us all together, but we're all this part of the body of Christ. I'm like, Just trying to figure out how, how this all works.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the and it's, and it's interesting. Those those um those terms that are used here, as you point out, that they they do show a difference, a difference within, and there's an ordering uh, that 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 God creates through, the, I would say, God creates through the Son, by the Spirit. And uh, so there's, a, there's an order, and there's even, even submission, as we talked about in chapter 11. There's a submission within the Godhead. Um, the, the Son submits to the Father, although the Son himself is holy and truly God, and yet submits to his Father. And so there's an order there. And you see something of that just kind of hinted or alluded at here. It would be hard to unpack and try to build a whole lot out of it just here. Um, let's see, where were we? Two chapter, I think, two verse 11. Uh, okay, so varieties of gifts apportioned as, 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 God, as the Spirit does. And according to the Spirit's will um, given to each, from verse 12, the diverse giftings of the many different members are all needed in the one unified body. So now here he has a little fun. Just as the body is one. And again, he's having, fun, he's having this fun because there's an emphasis on a particular gift. We haven't been told yet what it is. We haven't been told where is the issue, where is the problem, what's causing issues in Corinth that they're asking about, and they want to know whose side is Paul on. Uh, but first he's, he's laying more groundwork that all the gifts are important, not just one. All of the gifts are given. You shouldn't expect everybody to have a particular gift. The Spirit gives different gifts. and Now he gives those different gifts because all of them are needed. The body is one, has many members. All the members of the body, though many, are one body. There's a unity. In one spirit, we're all baptized. Okay, we did read that part. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. It may feel that way, but that's still not true. There's um, well, you could actually, you could, you, you could make some application here to the question about gender confusion today. Just because you don't think, doesn't make it true. The, here you have a foot having um, you could call it member dysphoria, that the foot doesn't think it belongs, and yet it does belong. It's an essential part of the body, and it, it thinking that way doesn't make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, "I'm not, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body," wouldn't make it any well, less.
1: Uh huh. Foot is no longer necessary. The arm is no longer. Eyeballs are no longer necessary. They've worked around. When people lose those items, they're no longer necessary, right? So when an amputee loses an arm or a leg, mm-hmm. it's no longer an essential part of the body.
0: You're talking about prosthetics?
1: Yeah, well, prosthetics would be one yeah. Okay. Or just none at all. I mean, literally they've got they've got guys coming back from war with no legs one arm, and you're still a whole
0: body. Oh yeah, but they don't have arms or legs, and they sort of miss them.
1: They do miss them, but the they, the body, the brain
0: figures out how to work without. Them. Right, but they still can't um, until they give some prosthetics. That then they can run to some extent. They still can't run or jump without legs. They might still be able to function and live, but the body is missing something.
1: So well, see, that's what's confusing me. Like, I've seen a lot of vets missing, and they're perfectly working
0: people. Oh yeah, yeah. We, well, we, we had a good friend in Mississippi that, that, he, that he was missing one leg and one arm. And um, that, that he, he was considered 100% disabled. He didn't have the same, he was considered disabled because he did not have the same ability physically as most men because he was missing one, one arm and one leg. That didn't mean he couldn't still be very productive and he, he took the opportunity with his disability to be very involved in the lives of their eight kids as well as a lot of other families. And so yeah, he, he, did, he did more than a lot of men. But it doesn't mean that he had lost ability in his physical body; that there wasn't a loss of that arm and of that leg. So that's what Paul's saying here: that it, t- take a norm- It's an illustration. It's an object lesson. You don't want to push that too far. Sure, sure. I understand. Yeah. That. I, mean, I do understand
1: that. And then I want to now I'm going to back a little bit. You said, are all these gifts? Is there any gift that everyone has? Shouldn't everyone
0: but the, there's a difference between having 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 faith and having the gift of faith. Why? I don't
1: know the difference.
0: Well, for instance, there's a gift of giving, and yet shouldn't everybody give? Yeah. Yeah. There's a gift of teaching, and yet everybody teaches at, in some way at some time. So
1: it's-
0: I I would describe it, first let me go a little, let me back away from that one, because that's a little more ambiguous. So giving, uh, someone who's gifted in giving just has an inclination, a a, a disposition by the Spirit that giving to them is easier and more joyful than the average selfish human being. Uh, a person then who has the gift of faith has a has has a, a special ability given by God to easily believe and trust God in the face of difficult circumstances, like George Mueller. Like a George Mueller, um, not everybody that has saving faith has the has the practical day to day in the face of impossibilities that George Mueller exhibited. And God used that faith of Mueller, not only in relation to Mueller's work, but to greatly encourage the church at large, not only around him, but the broader church all around the world, eventually. And so there you see an, an, a, a, a particular person's gift that God gives by the Spirit being used to edify the church more broadly, build up others. So everybody can have faith, but not going to have the same faith. Sure. Just like everybody teaches something to some extent to others, but not everybody is gifted by the Spirit as a teacher. Yeah, that's a great distinction. Thank you. Okay, where were we? Oh, the human body with many parts, whether they're all needed or not. (laughs) That's where we were. Okay, I want to keep both my feet as long as I can, by the way. (laughs) Just go on record there. Uh, The... the, um, Okay, the foot may be confused. The eye or the the ear may be confused. If the whole body were an eye, if if everybody was going to be an eye in the body, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? The body doesn't only need eyes and ears, it needs a nose as well. All of these things are important. I love Chuck Swindoll. He, he talks about this. He talks about this big old eyeball comes into church one morning. It just rolls its way down the aisle there, you know, and sort of does this little bumps up onto the front pew there and just sits there, this big old eyeball. There it is. That would be a little strange. No, but there's a whole bunch of eyeballs that come into the church, but they're part of a whole body package when we assemble together. An eyeball all by itself would be a little weird. God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose, God created us as He chose to create us with two eyes and and two ears and one mouth. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it, as, as it is, there are many parts, and yet one body. And so, okay, the, all the individual different, distinct parts are part of the body. And then he, he takes it the other direction now in verse 21. No one part of the body can minimize number, another member of the body. Now as he talks about parts of the body, like the hands or the feet, what's he referring to? As he talks about different parts like ears and eyes and noses, what's he talking about in the body of Christ? Gifts. He's talking about individual members who are gifted in different ways. Okay, so read in there. One of these needs to have the label of maybe faith, one of these needs to have the label of knowledge or prophecy. Knowledge is an interesting gift. There's a gift of knowledge, and yet everybody knows things. So. Another example of that, but uh, um, one of these has the gift of tongues. It's coming. He's leaning into it. We just haven't got there yet. We haven't uncovered it. But once you see it, when we get to 14, you'll see how he's led up to it all the way along. Okay, so the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. All we need, all we need is eyes around here. Nor again can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. How's the head going to get where it needs to go? if it doesn't have feet to carry it. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Well, the head's pretty important, right? Uh, there's no life without the head. The head's where the brain is, and the brain seems to run everything. And the head holds the, the eyes and the ears and the mouth, all of which are obviously publicly and, and, and relationally important. And yet, that head doesn't go anywhere without those feet. And yet, feet stink. And yet, feet are very important. There's some of the fun that he's having. And he's going to have a little more fun, I think. I'm just not sure how far I'm going to get into it. Okay. On those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts, are treated with greater modesty. Which are, which are more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be made no division in the body, but members have the same care of one another. So there's not this putting of one member, one part of the body above another. There's not this putting one gift, esteeming one gift as more important for the body than another. Now that's what he's saying. Now he talks about our... Are um, less honorable and greater honor. Our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. What's he talking about there? Okay, some, some parts of the body we clothe so that they're, they're not seen by others. That's, that's part of it. There's a modesty that is added. Um, it's interesting to me in human physiology Now you could say, in some ways, the most important part of the male anatomy in the long run is that part which is used for human procreation. And likewise with women. And yet, that part of the human anatomy that is associated with procreation is also associated with what? very dishonorable thing the waste out of the body. And so it's funny how there's great honor and dishonor assembled together even within the body. And I wonder sometimes, especially in a sex-saturated culture like Corinth, if Paul's subtly alluding to that here, that they could see it, and, and that graphic of an illustration would emerge to them, which makes his point. But the point overall is, if they're going to exalt one gift over another, that is not what the Spirit is going to do, because that's not in tune with, in harmony with what God has done in His creation. The human body is not merely a object lesson that he can use to make a point about diversity and unity. The human body is God's creation. God made this. This is God's doing. God made something that is the essentially us. God made something that he said humanity is made in his image. And he made humanity with differing members that have unique diverse functions that work together in a harmonized unity. So there's a deeper level to it. It's not merely an object lesson. What God has done, what we know best of all that God has done, is God creates a, a unity in diversity. God creates a harmonized variety. That's what God does in the body of Christ because that's what God has already done in each one of our bodies. We are all to ourselves a testimony of that. So by using this as an example, it's a great object lesson. It works at so many levels and yet it works on God is gonna do what's true to God and God has already shown us in terms of this body principle what is true to God in his creative working. So we would expect yeah. spiritual gifts, he will creatively work in the same kind of way. That's what's going on here. and It kind of excites me to see it at that level. Oh, yeah.
2: So, the idea of spiritual gifts, because I've been in Christian circles where people kind of get obsessed with, like, let's find out where your spiritual gift is. Like, yeah. There's a lot of time in that. Yeah. And there's the comparison to the body, like, you could name... I don't know if back then, but certainly now you could name hundreds of body parts. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Spiritual gifts uh-huh. say he's listing some of them, but not all of them. All right.
0: There are three different lists of spiritual gifts that Paul gives.
2: 1
0: oh, okay. Corinthians 12 to 14 includes, and, and the, largest, the largest list, as I said, he's going to narrow the topic down. The largest list is in chapter 12. And each time he gives a list, he gets smaller and smaller until you just get down to prophecy and tongues. And, um, but the others are in Romans chapter 12, I believe, and Ephesians chapter 4. So, but those th- three different lists, all by Paul, do not agree. There is overlap among them. but, but So we don't have an exhaustive list, I think, in any one place and we don't have necessarily any reason to insist that all of the gifts are included among those three lists Peter has a very short list of spiritual gifts somebody turn to 1st Peter chapter 4 verse 9 10 1st Peter 4 9 10 what's it say okay keep reading
2: as each has received a gift there we go to serve one another a good steward of God's um, a good as good stewards of God's varied grace whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus
0: Christ. Okay, so, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, as each has received a gift, put it into service, put it to use, the one who speaks and the one who serves. Peter has got a very short list of spiritual gifts. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. Okay, there are two, <laughs> there you go, but you could categorize the others that way. I love that verse, I use it in Transworld Radio a lot. I used the transistor radio because we had we had those who were behind the microphone speaking, and we had those who held up the microphone. Those who served in all kinds of ways, from leadership, administrative, technically, uh, um, electronics, computers, in order to keep that microphone working. So so, so so, Peter's very short list was a great division of the kind of giftings that we needed in a ministry like Translative Radio. You always think about radio. Well, the person in the studio behind the microphone. but There's a whole lot of other behind the scenes gifts. And the church works that way. The body works that way. We focus on faces with people. But you never see most pe- a lot of people's faces if the rest of the body wasn't working. There's a lot of folks that we don't see their faces in the church to mo- to today because their body doesn't allow them to come and get out of the house. Yeah, done.
1: For every man in combat is about nine pillars of
0: 40. Yeah, yeah. For every man on the front line. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so David gives the principle that the ones who stay with the baggage get the same reward as those who went into the battle. Yeah. Okay. So then, he concludes... Verse 27, you are the body of Christ. Okay, this all the stuff about body. I've been talking about the church, guys, if you haven't picked that up yet. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the, in the church. First, apostles and prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, and gift of healing and helping, administrator, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? What's the implied answer? The polite answer is no. No person, no, not one of these gifts is possessed by all. And so, again, it's, it's, it's a problem when, when a church puts all the focus on a single gift. Whatever that gift is. If our church were to only... What, what gifting do you think our church is probably most in danger of overemphasizing? Just as you know, our church all these years.
2: It's missions? Hmm? missions.
0: missions? Wait, no, like it. Okay, well, it, the, it would certainly be evangelism or the gift of apostleship. Yeah. The apostles were sent once. So, yeah, you could certainly go there. I wasn't going to say that, but that's insightful. I was, I was thinking teaching. We are a teaching church. We teach all over. We could overemphasize teaching so that nothing else matters but teaching. That could be a liability. But you're right as well at the gift of administration and the stability that good administration supplies. There's a lot of ministries that have overemphasized administration. They've administrated themselves out of ministry. And I've I've um, I remember conversations we've had we've had um, among the elders just by way of warning. Let's be careful. Let's not build any additional layer of church bureaucracy that is not absolutely needed, because you can have all kinds of controls and organizations and administrative checks and balances that could make all kinds of reason sense and yet will strangle ministry. Yeah, that's that, that's a, that's insightful. So the point is that you want all of those, in, 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 in missions we used to talk about something called you have, you have, some people are mission people and some people are missionaries. And some of those people that are mission people, they are looking out for the mission and they are making sure that the resources that the mission have are used wisely and carefully for the protection of the mission. And there are others involved with the mission who are missionaries. They would grab whatever resources they could and push them out to the front line in terms of going out after others. You say, well, gee, isn't that what it's all about? Yeah, but if you take everything out, you completely rob the store so that everything is out there, you've expended everything you've got, and you no longer have the support structure to continue that work in the following years and or the next generation. So there's a balance of both that is needed. But it was, it was fun sometimes to just kind of think about, okay, am I functioning as a mission person or as a missionary in this, in this setting? And it was a good way to just kind of be aware of that balance and the need for it. But the point being, yeah, all these var- varieties of giftings are needed. But he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. There are, now what do we mean by that? the higher gifts, the better gifts the great gifts it's a mega mega is the, is the Greek word there the mega gifts oh my goodness, now we're getting political <laughs> mega in the sense of great desire the great gifts well, that raises a question, doesn't it? desire the better gifts the higher gifts, the great gifts what question does that raise? see if we're on the same page what are those great gifts? I'm glad you asked not gonna tell you. (laughs) That's where he leaves them and yet I will show you a still more excellent way. There's something more important than which gifts are greater gifts and actually by unpacking that which is more important he's going to lead us into which gifts then are the greater gifts that should be desired in the church Okay. We've we turned the page already. Summarize the, the rest of chapter 12. We're getting into chapter 13. The diverse gifts of the body of Christ foster unity when exercised in love. So the, the, there's a diversity of gifts that are exercised or used in love. That's where we are now. The best way to use spiritual gifts is the loving way, as opposed to emphasizing the gifts which edify the most members. So it's not merely about what accomplishes the most good. That's language I got from this Dr. Rick Griffith um, from the Jordan Jets. I think he's actually in the church that the Lowens are in in Jordan now, and uh, he's associated with um, World Venture, which is the mission that our. Um, our churches have been associated with. And um, he just put outlines like this out of valuable online. Hey, if you can make use of this, so use it. So I've been adapting his, his outline. And that language, he, I, I thought it was interesting that here you have somebody in the front lines of mission and yet he's talking about spiritual gifts you use in a loving way as opposed to emphasizing the gifts which edify the most. I show you a more excellent way. And that excellent way is exercised in love. Spiritual gifts not exercised in love are fruitless or are of no spiritual benefit. Just because it's a spiritual gift doesn't mean it's of spiritual benefit. Is that surprising? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong, noisy gong, or a clanging cymbal. Tongues of men and even of angels. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains. Well, you got that line from Jesus, right? If you had the faith of a grain of a mustard seed, you could take this mountain and say, be cast into the sea, and it would be. Right? Okay? But if I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my, my body to be burned, but have not love... I gain nothing. Now, has Paul delivered over his body to be burned? Has he given away all that he has? I think Paul's been quite generous along the way. I think Paul is not withholding. You read his testimony to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, and he talks about how much he gave of himself for them. Um, you read the same kind of things in, in 2 Corinthians. Corinthians. But has he given his body to be burned? Yeah?
1: Is some of this hyperbole?
0: Is it hyperbole? Can we
1: tell how many people have ever thrown a mountain into
0: the sea? Yes, yeah, yeah. So if if I have all, so as to remove mountains, if I, does Paul ever claim to have all knowledge? Does Paul ever claim to understand all mysteries? To have um, um, Does Paul speak in the tongues of men and of angels? I expect Paul spoke in tongues. In fact, he says he does. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. We'll get to that in chapter 14. But a lot of people will use chapter 13, verse 1, to say that there is an angelic language, there is a heavenly language that Christians should speak in. And that gives us a freer communication with God. Uh, We ourselves don't know what we're saying, but somehow that's a freer communication with God. But the only basis for that anywhere is this verse. And this verse is, all three of these statements are hyperbole statements. They are exaggeration to make a point. You're taking it to the nth degree. Just as... The, uh, the verse 2 and verse 3 would not be insisted by Paul. In fact, my body to be burned never happened because he still has his body. He's, these are if statements by hyperbole. Okay. So sign gifts like tongues without love are a distracting noise. First of all, he talks about um, speaking in tongues. And then he talks about speaking gifts, prophecy, knowledge, faith without love. Bring no honor to the speaker. I am nothing. Speaking gifts typically bring honor or recognition to a speaker. Um, The um, sign gifts, like tongue. Well, tongues makes a sound. But the sound is not edifying voice. The sound, apart from love, is noise. In fact, it's an irritating noise. And then there's serving gifts. Yeah?
2: Um, So, has he already defined what kind of Love he's talking about here, because I guess the the reason I mentioned we have a non-believer in our family and she knows this verse and she was quoting it to us recently. And they, I mean, there's certainly a a version of love that people say, well, I'm for love, love the idea, but he's Mm -hmm. certainly not saying, you know, you're not saying that he's he can't just be saying like, you know, because there's certain types of love in terms of like homosexual love or something like that where the world would say, well, this is
0: oh, okay. There's there's, there's there are love.
2: Is yeah, meaning love of God.
0: Or- yeah, I love my wife. I love donuts. Yeah. Probably not the same. Yeah. okay? Um, definitely not the same. <laughs> the, 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 but, but in Greek there are actually different words. There is an erotic love, uh, the Greek word eros. There is a friendship love, the love of a brother, that's Phylos, um, Philadelphia the city of brotherly love and um, then there is a agape which is a a giving sacrificial focused on the other that's often translated charity Now the meaning our understanding of the word charity has has um, kind of shifted a little bit the connotation of it over the years but love translated as charity or agape translated as charity was a love that gives to one that is not able to give in return it is freely given because of the need of another for their good without any expectation of return it's considered the highest kind of love and that's the love that he's talking about here so it's a giving love God so loved the world that, that's agape love so it's that love of a, of a mother for her, her, her child yeah um, that's the kind of love and he's going to describe what that love looks like as we go further. Uh, that love is, is patient. It's kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not jealous or self-centered. The essence of the fall is, a, is an inward curve and a focus upon ourselves. I matter most. Love says the other matters more. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It would a- actually yield to another for their sake. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices rather in truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. Endures all things. So there are some descriptions about love. It. Um, It benefits others both passively and actively, it's patient and kind. It doesn't hurt others in seven negative ways. So it does benefit others, it does not harm others. These are some ways to think about these categories. Love rejoices in the right things. Now that kind of reflects back to 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. They they may have thought they were loving by being gracious and not being judgmental against the the man who is continuing in terrible sin. Sin that was destructive for him and others. And the loving thing to do was to speak truth. Paul echoes that in Ephesians chapter 4, speaking the truth in love, or truthing in love. And so there's a, there's, there's a balance of these things. It rejoices in the right things and is willing, love, love is willing to be wrong. Remember in chapter 6 where he says, rather than suing your brother, why not rather be wronged? And that's what love would do. Love not only for the other, but love for the sake of the church and love for God and His name within this city. I would take, one, take that hurt upon myself. Love doesn't give up on others. Now, love bears all things. Love believes all things. Does that... I mean, your kids are going to use that against you at some point, right? Well, our kids are older. Your kids will. <laughs> Does that mean that you believe whatever you're told is, is, is love foolish and naive? So, so be careful, I guess, in, in, a, in, a, um, in, a, in a description like this, don't push, don't push these statements in the wrong direction. <coughs> okay, love never ends. This is an interesting statement. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Now we've come to another list of spiritual gifts. How many this time? We're narrowing it down, aren't we? We've gotten to three now. There's only three gifts in the list. So we're sharpening the focus to where he's really going, which we'll get to in chapter 14. Prophecies will pass away. Tongues, they will cease. Knowledge, it will pass away. Another way to think about there's there's two different words that are used here, pass away and cease. The ESV does a good job of translating them consistently. The pass away is something that will actually... It it comes to an end because of something else. It runs up to something that stops it. Um, So some versions say will come to an end, which is probably a better translation. It comes to an end because it comes to an end point the word cease is something that winds down of itself it's something that slows down and comes to a stop without something else acting upon it and there's a, there's all, there's a passive as compared to an active here. Uh, pass away is a... I think I, I put something in the notes on this, did I? Yes, prophecy and knowledge will pass away, be made to end, or caused to end, and it's a passive voice. The prophecy and knowledge, that passive is something is acting upon them, causing them to stop. The tongues, the verb there is a middle voice. You have in the the Greek, you have three voices active, middle, and passive. Active voice means I do something to something else. I act on something. Uh, Passive means I'm the recipient of the action, something else causes me to stop. A middle voice is something I do in relation to myself, I act upon myself. So when the middle voice is applied here to tongues, what he's saying is tongues are going to wind down of their own without something else happening that brings them to an end. Tongues are going to act upon themselves in winding down. So, I diagram that this way. You can agree or disagree, but I, I, I see um, prophecy continuing to an end point. I see knowledge Continuing to that same endpoint. I see tongues winding down for some reason on their own before we get to the endpoint. And I think he's going to tip his hand on what the endpoint is as we read a little further. But that's the difference in the two words. So there's something being hinted at in the difference used. Okay. Uh, let's see, we know in part and we prophesy in part so, knowledge is in part oh wait a minute, what about in that part there if I had understood all mysteries and if I understood all knowledge Paul says, no, 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 we don't we know in part, we prophesy in part, there's not one of the prophets that knew it all in the Old Testament either They, they each contributed something by God's Spirit that's the way God does it, okay? And he says here, I, I hadn't cut that before until just now, re, kind of reading through it together. We know in part, but then... Oh, sorry, I jumped ahead. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Perfect is the intended end. It's the Greek word teleos. Um, it is finished. When Jesus cries out, it is finished, he's using the same Greek word. A verb form of it. When the perfect comes, the partial, partial knowledge, partial prophecy will pass away. When do these two, when do these two end? When do they come to an end? When the perfect comes. Whatever that is. Okay? We haven't said any more about what that is yet, but that's when they will end. Okay? When the perfect comes. Until then, we prophesy in part. We know in part. But when the perfect comes, when we reach the intended end, then that which is in part will be done away. We won't need the gift. At some point in the future, we will not need the gifts of prophecy and knowledge, because we will be perfect. We will be completed in our knowledge and in our hearing from God Himself. Um, Prophecy, the gift of prophecy is to speak as a messenger of God. Um, The Old Testament prophets spoke as messengers of God. A preaching pastor today speaks God's Word as a messenger from God to a congregation today. So the closest thing, I think, the exercise of, of the prophetic gift in the church today, at least um, it parallels what the prophets were doing. So that, that's one analogy of the prophetic gift today. But it is functioning. In general, prophecy means the messenger of God. Yeah? So prophecy, to me, is the future.
1: Mm. Knowledge is the past. Okay. okay. So when do
0: these... That's a nice, neat category, by the way. I'm not sure I buy it. Okay, when do they
1: end? Or when
0: does it well, we haven't got there yet we haven't got there yet but let's go back to prophecy you know of only a small percentage of what the Old Testament prophets say is actually new information about the future most of what the prophets are saying is about the present how Israel is living but
1: it has nothing to do with it.
0: Well, they need to change what they're doing. They're going to end up in Babylon. Is <laughs> what's going to happen. <laughs> but, 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 but most of what the prophets are, the prophets are the prophets basically are taking the the past redemption and a future hope that God is giving and applying that to a present circumstance. But the prophets are not the prophets are not um, uh, creative. Uh, they're not. They are. They are traditionalists. The prophets are preaching Moses to a new generation. In fact, Moses himself said, if a prophet comes along and he doesn't agree with me, you don't listen to him. But the prophets are, are applying Moses into a generation and this is another parallel between prophets and preachers. The prophets took special revelation, the word from God given through Moses hundreds of years earlier and they take Moses and they preach it applicationally, relevantly, to a later generation that needs to hear it. That's what a pastor does. He takes special revelation, the Word of God, given through others Moses and Paul, and and takes that truth. I don't come up with new truth. I take that truth and I preach it to an audience hundreds of years removed from when that revelation was given. That, that's why I say that's one of the parallels between um, prophets, as you see them in the Old Testament, and preachers, as you see them in the New Testament.
1: So, prophets' knowledge are the same thing.
0: Then. Oh, they—they are—they are both—they are, both, are very similar. They're serving a very similar purpose, yes. And and I'm I'm I'm. I'm to me, there's a little bit of ambiguity there, especially with knowledge. What this knowledge is, it's certainly specific insight from God that you wouldn't naturally have. I just know. but Exactly what that looks like is, is a little fuzzy to us and it's not unpacked. Prophecy we gain something certainly from the Old Testament model. Now New Testament prophets, there seems to be a little bit of difference. Paul talks, well, he'll talk about it in chapter 14, that some of the prophets um, and prophecy in the church, let one of the prophets speak and let the other prophets judge what that prophet is saying. The prophets in the Old Testament also would be judged. Their speech would be judged. And Moses said so. So it doesn't mean that those New Testament prophets could err when Old Testament prophets couldn't. But the question is, is, is the man speaking by his prophetic gift? or out of his own thinking." You got to ask the same thing about the pastor, don't you? In fact, they did that with Paul. They listened to Paul carefully and then they searched the scripture to see if these things were so. That's how they knew that Paul, as an apostle, was, was, was was speaking for God because what Paul was saying lined up with, agreed with what God had already said. So, Let's, let's, let's hold on to that. Okay, we've got this perfect thing. We've, we're, 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 we're trying to uncover before we run out of time here. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Okay, let me say it a different way. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, when I grew up, when I reached maturity, I gave up childish ways. Oh, if only. <laughs> For now we see in a mirror, dimly but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So this perfect seems to be, when we see him, we will be like him. For then we shall see him as he is. Paul says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. So that perfect, I think the perfect refers to not as specifically the second coming of Christ, but the perfecting, the finishing, the completion of the church. Which does happen, yes, at the second coming of Christ. But the emphasis is not on the coming of Christ here. It's on the perfection of the church. And so we now fully know Him and are with Him in unhindered fellowship that is not separated by the weakness of this flesh. We are transformed and changed. And we will fully behold Him. We'll know Him as He knows us there'll be no need for the gift of knowledge. Nor prophecy any longer. Those gifts serve to build up, as we'll see in the next chapter, to edify, to build up, to strengthen the church, nurture the church, as we are growing toward, shall I say it, perfection. Think of perfection as mature. As reaching God's intended end. God's goal, our glorification. Yes. Being transformed from glory to glory into the same image. There. Yeah. Yeah, this is God's end for the church and the gifts of prophecy and the gifts of knowledge and other spiritual gifts used within the church to edify the church are maturing us to that end. That's what's going on in the present. And that's why spiritual gifts are needed in the church. A whole variety of them. But he's he's going to raise some questions on this one. But we'll save that for next week. Because it's 7.15. And we've got to the end of chapter 13. Any, any more questions about chapter 13? i question, a little bit off
1: topic. Oh, feel free. So...
0: Is it still like that in modern Greek? Well, a lot of the... the, I I don't know so much about modern Greek. And there's, like any language, over over centuries it changes. Um, So, the Koine Greek of the New Testament is different from classical Greek, Homer, Odyssey. It's different from Greek today. Even as our English is different from the Elizabethan English of the original King James Version of the Bible in 1611. It just seems like is more well, any language is any like that. I couldn't give you an example of um, a word that we have multiple words that are kind of synonyms but with shades of difference, where Greek only has one. But for instance, in Swaziland, Cattle are very important. A man's cows are important. And and they weren't branded, they were described. Swazis had had 12 different words for brown cow that would differentiate subtle differences in the brown of the cow because that was really important in Swazi and Zulu culture. And so all languages have this imperfect overlap where words have a range of meaning and that the range of meaning of a, of a word in another language whether it's Greek or Hebrew or whatever is going to not overlap precisely with a particular word in another language and so you have well this word means this and this but over in our language it means this and this and so that's why sometimes you're working to clarify because the overlaps are not perfect. Now Greek as a language is much more precise of a language in terms of the grammar and the, um, uh, the different words that are valuable to be used. Could you use this one? Could he, There are two words for other. Another of the same kind and another of, the, of a different kind. Well, in English we don't have two words for other. We have one word, other, or another. And so you have to know, well, which Greek word are we talking about there? Um, So the the, um, Hebrew, on the other hand, is a great storytelling language. It's a narrative language. Hebrew is better at conveying emotional force. And so Hebrew is a great foundational knowing God. Um, Greek is a better language for establishing a tighter, clearer, um, sharpening the focus, so to speak. So it's interesting how God did it that way. First we had the general picture and the storyline and then we brought in the HD <laughs> you to tighten it up a little bit. So, Any other questions? Alright, we'll, we'll, put, we'll put a pin in. The- yes, we have questions in chapter 14 and we will confront those head-on next week. Alright.